Matt Laswitz, and welcome to this week's episode of Bat Chat with Matt and Will, a Batman ranking podcast, where each week my co-hosts Will Nevin and I dig into three Batman stories, discuss them, and rank them on our big board, thus creating a giant list of Batman stories from best to worst. Will, what's going on? I feel old, Matt. I feel really old. Just aches and pains, randomly. I was... uh looking at uh at my business this morning and i was like ah that looks weird never looked quite like that before so you know just just the joys of of approaching 40 let me ask you this totally unrelated question if you could have attended any sporting event in history what would it have been a very good question. You know, my, my first instinct was the the sheer joyful spite of being a big brother and saying the 1986 World Series where that ball goes under Buckner's legs because my brother uh, is a big giant Mets fan, and if I could go and he couldn't, there's there's a little bit of <laughs> <laughs> but the real answer, the I won't say unequivocally right answer, but pretty close. 1936 Summer Olympics, just to watch Jesse Owens kick every Nazi's ass on the track. I would suggest traveling under an assumed name. Oh, yeah. Oh, believe me. <laughs> yeah. When I go out to Pennsylvania to visit Amber's family, yeah, no, I, I go by her last name out there. <laughs> oh, I shouldn't laugh at that. No, no, definitely not Lazowitz. No, 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 no. Uh, this anti-Semitism is killing Matt. There are others. I mean, you know, you'd love to watch the Babe, Babe and Lou Gehrig play, Jolton Joe. I mean, any of those, the Yankee legends. Being that I'm mostly a baseball guy, not as big with football or basketball or or those other, other major sports, my default tends to be baseball related. But Same. You know, watching Muhammad Ali, be able to watch Ali in his prime, that would be something to watch. There's the sentimental thing of watching my grandfather in the ring. I've mentioned, I think I've mentioned that on this show. I know I've mentioned it on WMQ. Yes. But yeah, to be able to see my, my grandfather fight, that would be something. How about you? Well, not to brag or nothing, but I've I've already seen my college football team win two national championships in person. Somewhere Corey is mad and she doesn't know why. If Colt McCoy hadn't gotten hurt. So yeah, like I have lived through one of the great eras of Alabama football, so I'm good there. Roll Base- Fuck yeah, bud. Although now we're kind of on the downside, and I think the next couple of years are going to be a little bit sketch. But hey, this new expanded college football playoff coming in, going to NFL size the whole thing. Everybody's going to be, you know, eight and four with a chance to get into the playoff every year. So, you know, it's fine. I'm going to go with something a little understated. And it just came to me as I was trying to think about my answer to the question. It would be a moment that nobody would know. And nobody would recognize, but I would know it. Thurman Munson's last game. That's a good call. 
because I think I think his story is kind of sad and uh, you know a real tragic cut down in his prime, great catcher, captain. And yeah, and, and I'm sure it was just like a just a ho-hum game, right? Nobody had any clue that it would have been his last. Something you know, it would be similar with Roberto Clemente, too. And that would have been a 3,000 hit. That yeah. would have been that would be a game. Yeah, it's just, it gets you thinking, like, or someone like a first game, someone who became huge, who nobody at that time thought was going to be anybody. You know, trying to think yeah. who today would be uh, maybe Aaron Judge, right? Mm. A, a touted prospect, right? But nobody's like, oh, this guy's going to set the the AL home run record. But the, the, that was baseball corner, and. Now for something completely different. Tonight's episode, we are going to finally finish Batman number one, the original, with the first appearance of Catwoman, as well as two other Catwoman-centric stories. Our first story is The Cat. This is from Batman Volume 1, number one. The writer is Bill Finger, with pencils by Bob Kane, inks and letters by Jerry Robinson. No colorist or editor is credited, and the cover date is March of 1940. A yacht party with a famous gem has Robin go undercover to try to determine who is the mysterious cat who is trying to steal it. Matt makes the bold play of going in chronological order. Yes. That's how we're going to do this week. So now that we have finished Batman number one, treating the Joker stories as one, because really it pretty much is, how do we rank these three stories? I guess we'll be able to tell from the actual rankings, but just off the top without anything else intervening with the Joker, the cat, and the monsters of Hugo Strange. They are all very different stories. The Joker, the only one that really feels like a Batman story. You know, Hugo Strange, it's got monsters. That's automatically weird. And this is more like hijinks on the high seas. If you didn't have the bits where the mobsters ride up in another boat and try to rob them, if it was just the stuff going on on the yacht, this would feel more like a Poirot than anything yeah, else. Yeah, exactly. Very Agatha Christie, or Miss Marple. Very Agatha Christie with the way the suspects appear, the actual crime. It's all very parlor crime, which is not bad. I enjoyed it quite a bit. Yeah, it's it's a, it's a fun little story. You know, you can imagine uh, Benoit Blanc coming in as Batman. Yes. Couldn't be the old one. Of course. No, it's just dumb. <laughs> uh, I still have to see Glass Onion. It's very good. You want to go in as unspoiled as possible, so I will just say I enjoyed it very much. Yeah, I've I've been on the internet for months now, and nobody spoiled it yet. I'm so happy. This also has a vibe of your classic radio detective story of this era, which a lot of them had that very simple structure of detective is called in, detective meets a bunch of suspects, and winds up figuring it out in some sort of funny, over-the-top sort of way as Bruce pulls this 
in the end when Bruce finally shows up. Lots for Robin to do. Lots for Robin to do. And it struck me just how different it has felt from every other Golden Age story we have done so far. The one that's the closest I think we've come to this was The Santas, because that also had a kind of formula to it. But this is Robin goes on the boat undercover as a steward that Bruce Wayne gets him the job because I know people. Right. And Bruce immediately suspects when the little old lady is going to take her famous diamond necklace out for this yacht party that somebody is going to try to steal it. Which, I mean, we're, we're still in the early days of Gotham. I don't think it's technically even Gotham yet, but that's just asking for it. Let's be fair. Yeah, the, the real play here, fake pirates, uh, fake necklace, you just file an insurance claim and then you, you collect on that and you fence the necklace yourself. That one almost had a, that would have a Scooby-Doo vibe to it. Ghost, g- 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 ghost pirates. Uh, that's a really good Dragnet episode about uh, they get called in to investigate uh, a theft from a safe. And it's like, safe wasn't cracked. How could it have gotten in? Oh, it was gone the whole time. Fenced months ago. Robin gets on the boat and we immediately get the three suspects. Because we get her wastrel nephew, who's always hitting her up for money. Her doctor, who has a gambling problem. And her brother, who lost a bunch of money in the markets. But Just because you're my brother doesn't mean I must finance all your stupid plunges in the stock market. The dialogue here is cutting. The other, what's he called? The other steward kid, when he, he's talking about the nephew, he has some pretty choice words to describe the nephew. He's a rat. Probably hanging around to get some money out of her. He's always borrowing dough from his aunt. They all try to get dough out of her. This is not the type of story I'd expect from a superhero comic. It's so understated until the mobsters show up. But it does read like a lot of the period crime comics. Absolutely. Or, or the pulps. It feels very in line with like an Ellery Queen. But of course, knowing that it's the first appearance of Catwoman, it's very obvious out of the gate who the cat is. Even if you, I hadn't, you know, read this before. And it's it's a decent little plot from Selena, disguising herself as another little old lady so that nobody would suspect. But she's got a bad ankle. Right. That she set up all along. Why does she have a bad ankle? You needed something she could bandage that nobody would be poking ah, at. Ah, very good. Okay, yes, that does make sense now. I mean, but that was also ultimately her downfall. Indeed. But who would have expected somebody to fake a fire alarm to get everybody running? Only Batman. Only Batman. I also, the, the sequence with Robin and the the steward kid features one of those little intricacies of golden into silver age comics that always makes me scratch my head. 
that colloquialisms in caption boxes are put in quotes, which I've never understood why the slang gets put in quotation marks. Dick Dick pumps one of the regular stewards. And oh that that has a, a connotation to it, but not up there with Joker's boner, but yeah, it's uh it's a little spicy. But it, that was just something they would do. All colloquialisms were put in quotation marks. And I'm like, why? Not the Queen's English, maybe? For I the guess. kids out there? But from here, eventually, the, the necklace is, of course, stolen. But the minute it's stolen, mobsters come up on the boat and try to steal it. Because why not? And, and I think that, that was some injecting some action into the story and maybe a little bit of filler. Yeah, no, I definitely think it's it's action. It's a reason to get Robin in costume to get Batman, who had another case, so he couldn't immediately come out to the boat. Time to show up. It's very busy. Yeah, I was kind of hoping that the other case would be the cat. You'd think that they would have tied those together, but no, it's just another nameless case that doesn't matter. Uh, oh, yeah, we saw that uh, in the Gotham Central story with those two cases happening to tie together. I really enjoy picturing like, oh, where did that steward go? That I, I guess he's dead. Oh, Robin, you're soaking wet. Why are you wet? And I like that Dick is able to change underwater. That was several days of his training, changing costumes underwater. While avoiding bullets. But all of this leads into my favorite moment in this comic where Batman and Robin catch up to these thugs. Batman rides up on the bat boat. Robin had already stowed away and then they, they've taken them out. And then Batman's like, Hey, why don't we <laughs> let these four of these guys come at you without their guns, Robin? Even the crooks like the guy's nuts. But then Robin of course beats these four grown men and the rest of them are like, no, we're not going to do anything. We're yeah, we 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 we're, we're out. And then Batman at the end of the sequence turns to the audience, looks right out of the panel, breaks the fourth wall. Well, kids, there's your proof. Crooks are yellow without their guns. Don't go around admiring them. Rather, do your best in fighting them and all their kind. Ah, uh, free code, but crime still cannot pay. Yeah, I, I love Batman basically like, all right, we're gonna have a cockfight. Let's see, let's see if you can beat these four grown men, kid. And if you can't, well, we're stranding you out at sea. We're gonna that's just Frank Miller's Batman. We're gonna we're gonna put you in a lifeboat uh, lifeboat and cast you aside. But as we get to the end of this story, this does have one of those very memed panels as Batman is removing the makeup from the cat after he figured out that she's the old lady. He goes, let go of me. Batman's reply, quiet or Papa Spank. Uh, I uh, I missed that the first time around. Yep, quiet or Papa Spank. That is a panel I have seen used in many a meme. And it's called back to in the second story tonight. But we'll, we'll get there. And then somehow Batman like knocks out the nephew who brought Catwoman on board as his little old lady date by hitting him in the face with a diamond necklace. 
I guess that's, you know, Batman knows the exact pressure point to hit with that diamond to knock this guy cold. Well, diamonds are very hard, Matt. True. Some people might even throw him down on the ground and fuck on him. We'll get there, too. (laughs) Ooh, I got a diamond in my pee hole. (laughs) In the end, we get the first of many times that this particular trope will happen over the years where Bruce basically just lets Selena get away. He even, like, stops Robin from tripping her up. And then he's like, no, I didn't do anything. And I got a girl, Julie. Yeah, Julie. Yeah, that's the one I like. Boy, she had lovely eyes. It has been there since the first story. Batman has been making bad decisions based on his feelings for Selena Kyle from appearance number one. And say what you will about this story. That is a nice thing that it's it is established at the very beginning. This story, I think, falls into my category of charming. It is charming. Nothing too problematic aside from Papa Spank. Aside from Papa Spank. This Selena is not the supervillain yet. She's a burglar. I assume she knocks out the guard. We don't hear whether or not she knocked out or killed the guard who's guarding the necklace. But as Bruce lets her go, I have to imagine she just knocked him out and didn't kill him. Oh no, I thought this was fun. It is fun. You know, you ask how to rank this. God, it's such such a cowardly answer to push. Uh, but it's either my gut says because it's hijinks and mystery on the high seas uh, just a scooch below hugo strange and the monsters but it's a solid number two i will also say the art is the stiffest of the stories in this issue it's it is much 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 rougher than the joker story and i think a bit rougher than the monsters of hugo strange there's a couple of panels that are truly like what was going on here and i think some of that might have to do with retouches there's an expression on page five as one of the mobsters whirls around that is really weird and also there's some strange panel layouts for how some of the dialogue falls but it's still fun and you know what I think it might be time. I concur. That means it's time. Batman number one, the cat's on the big board. We have 276 stories on the big board. Getting real close to the big 300. Number one is still the post-crisis origin of Batman. Batman year one. At number 50 is Batman Eternal. Part one, Mob War. Coming in at a sexy 69, it's JLA, New World Order. Down at number 100 is First Fools, Impulse number 50. At 150 is Nightmare in Crimson, the Bronze Age Batman versus the Monk story. At 200 is Dark Knight, a true Batman story. At 250, we got 
Batman Master of the Future, the sequel to Gotham by Gaslight, and all the way at the bottom, still White Knight. Boo. Okay, so the Giants of Hugo Strange is at 211. So you're thinking a little bit below that? That's tough. And this area is by no means bad. You know, we don't start getting truly bad until, at this point now, the 240s into the 250s. Yeah, I think mid-240s even. Like, the upper 240s are still good but flawed. Which I think is a lot of this area is good but flawed. You know, we've got uh, Detective Comics 38, uh, Robin the Boy Wonder at 240. I will also give this credit for as wordy as it is. It did better than a lot of the other stories from this era we've read in the showing versus telling. Every panel wasn't a scene. We actually saw some fight stuff actually play out. And I got to give it some credit for that. Yeah, and it's not like narrating constantly... Uh, you know, Batman thinks about his next punch and he delivers his next punch and he lands his next punch and then he pivots and like, so yeah, the dialogue is still oodles upon oodles, but the narration is definitely not um, as overwhelming as some of these stories. I cannot put this below 214, below uh, Shaman, the first five issues of Legends of the Dark Knight. That has some problematic representation issues it's a bit overwrought in places the cat is a trifle the only thing that makes it not a trifle is it's the first appearance of friggin catwoman if this didn't introduce catwoman this would be a quintessential golden age trifle all right so at least in my mind if it is a push with Hugo Strange and the Monster Men, maybe the first appearance of Catwoman breaks the tie. We put this above Hugo Strange, so maybe now we start to look more in the 200s, the early 200s yeah. I think somewhere in between 205 and 211. Because 205, Luthor, you're driving me sane. The Luthor and Joker swap insanity for genius is one of those fun little trifles that I think is more enjoyable to read. Yes. I'd put this above Brave and the Bold 86 at 208. As would I. How I think I'd put it above the resurrection of Rachel Ghoul. Because that was both too long and too short at the same time. I think this could go in between that and the three ghosts of Batman with the second of the three Batman. So that would make it the new 207. Sounds good to me. All right. And look at that. We have now read and ranked all of the stories from the first issue of Batman. Only what? 900 more to go. Well, we've got some others in there. We're, 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 well, uh, but Many of those early issues have multiple stories. Damn. Yeah, we're, we're still around 900 stories. So you get through just that book. Not even considering Detective. But our next story is Catch as Cats Can. 
This is Detective Comics, Volume 1, numbers 569 to 570. The writer is Mike W. Barr, with pencils by Alan Davis, inks by Paul Neary, colors by Adrian Roy, letters by John Workman, and edited by Denny O'Neill. The cover dates are December of 1986 to January of 1987. The Joker has decided he doesn't like that Catwoman has started working with Batman on the side of the Angels. So, with a little mind-control technology, he turns her back to her criminal ways. Can Batman win her back? This is the darkest episode of 66 ever created. I will concur in that. And I was thinking, man, this story is real zany for something that comes after year one. And that's the weird thing about this story. This story exists in a very weird continuity place. Pre-crisis. But released post-crisis. That's weird and dumb, Matt. Yeah, because the issue before this in Detectives was a crossover with the Legends crossover, which was the first crossover after Crisis. But this is very clearly playing off of the pre-Crisis continuity, including the costume Selena is in. And Jason Todd is very clearly pre-Crisis Jason Todd. I I think we have to have, like different like robins right this is this is jay this is cute silly uh dick grayson knockoff and then we have tire thief jason todd yeah this feels like it follows up batman 400 which is technically the last pre-crisis batman story because there selena is in this costume and is working with batman this feels like it was written before they kind of realized they were going to reboot everything. And this was meant to soft reboot Selena's relationship with Bruce to put her back as a criminal. And then crisis happened. And it's like, yeah, we'll still release it. I mean, it's th- these guys are the ones who are going to be on this book after this is of course, the same creative team that did fear for sale. My beginning and my probable end. This is the beginning of that run. These two issues go right into fear for sale. Then the Mad Hatter story we haven't covered. No, then the uh, Doomsday book. Then the Mad Hatter story we haven't covered. Then my beginning and my probable end. And then into Batman Year Two, which Davis only does the first issue on. And Todd McFarlane does the rest. Interesting. Yeah. Oh, no. No, no. It is. It's just, it's, it's, a, it's a really weird artistic shift going oh, from well, Davis to McFarlane. We'll get there soon enough. But Batman is calling Robin chum in this story. Jason puns incessantly in combat. So much so that Batman tells him to stop. Especially when he goes, holy Gutenberg Bible. Never do that again. There's also one weird thing that the first time it happened, I thought it was just, an error, but then Bruce says it again. For some reason, he, Jim is Captain Gordon here. Yeah, that's that's strange, isn't it? And I was like, wait, could they have been trying to get this to tie in and fit after year one before Jim is commissioner? That doesn't make sense either. But you know, it opens. This story starts 
in the Gotham Medical Supply Warehouse, right? The just the zaniest ass 66 setting that you can imagine. And it really doesn't get any less weird from there. No. And in that fight scene, by the way, that is where Robin takes a um a defibrillator cart rides up behind two of the villains two of the these cat crooks whacks them on the ass with the paddles and says daddy spank when he shocks them which felt like it had to be bar making a conscious reference to that first catwoman story this is too much matt <laughs> this is too much there is a very 66 vibe there's a death trap towards the the middle right before the act break joker is just this side of zany he's got a hideout a hideout in a novelty warehouse now okay i've learned to now possibly count on these things i'm curious joker's caper is to steal a book from the library did you look up the book Oh, I have been called out, and unfortunately, I'm here to disappoint. I did not look it up, because I, I just assumed that it was just a, a random throwaway, didn't actually exist. Nope. It is called Joe Miller's Jests. I didn't really see anything that indicated how valuable it is, but it was a book that was written in the 1800s. And Joe Miller was a popular comedic actor on the London stage in 1709 until his death in 1738. Oh, 1700s, excuse me. It's the 1800s. A year later, the publisher T. Reed enlisted a down-and-out writer named John Motley to compile a book of jokes and stuck Miller's name on it. But yeah, so it, it was an existing book. The book provided proved wildly popular, and a series of ever-expanding editions followed. By 1865, there were nearly 1,300 jests in the volume. So my assumption is this would have been one of the 1700s copies of this book. But it is one that has remained in print every now and then, it seems. But yeah, it was a real book. Well, the the comic here calls it Joe Miller's Joke Book. And it was, as you said, Joe Miller's Jests. Yes. So it, it felt like Barr didn't quite go as thorough as some of those silver age writers we've seen did with their research on these wild friggin' things that they like to throw in joker here is violent does he actually kill anybody in this one though it seems like every time he starts to he gets interrupted i don't think he actually kills anybody which is not to say he's not a sadistic bastard and he has a sidekick, a very problematic sidekick at that. Oh boy. Yeah. What's his name? Straight Line. Straight Line. Yeah. Who is apparently a Vietnam War veteran. And th- that's, he's quoting Rambo. Ah. That whole shtick is Rambo. So this is. This is a guy who just does impressions? Is that Yeah, is that it what seems we... to be. I'm pretty sure if he's not quoting, he's absolutely riffing on Rambo. 
And Joker, throughout this whole story, when I read most Joker stories, I hear Mark Hamill in my head. I absolutely hear Cesar Romero in so much of this dialogue. Oh, yeah. Then the design is certainly very close. Lead them a merry chase, my fools. <laughs> you can only hear that in Cesar Romero lines. But Joker is also violently brutal, even if he isn't actually killing people. And he gets involved with Dr. Moon, which is never a good sign, because that fucker. This is this is the first time I have seen Dr. Moon. What's What's this guy's deal? Moon first appeared in a story we covered, but in a very small part. Uh, remember the Rachel Ghoul story with the, the brain in the jar? That weird shit? Yeah. Moon was the guy that Raish got to build the device to talk to the brain. And that was Moon's first appearance. But Moon is this sort of generic, you need a mad scientist who's into like, weird brain and mind shit you get dr moon he's appeared randomly in various dc comics over the years often popping up in bat books but this was the first time i ever saw moon when i first read this story the first part of this 569 was a back issue that i saw that cover of batman trying to free robin from the web of stuff that straight man sprays him with and I bought that back issue and was very disappointed when I found out it was a two-parter. And the whole spraying something that turns out to be a Chinese finger trap mm -hmm. stuff. Yeah, I get very 60. You, you can see the 66 like, oh, this is really just like fire extinguisher stuff. But then we'll do a, a, a quick cut and it'll be like plaster of Paris when we go back to it. And again, the, the line in this one that got me was, was Moon talking to Joker when they, they've got Selena set up with this brain scan device that's going to basically reset her mind to her criminal past. And Moon's, my researches also indicate the process is accompanied by no little pain. I should like to wait until the subject is conscience to measure the level. Doc? You're my kind of guy. No little pain is some awkward phrasing there. Despite it being somewhat awkward, it's it, it reeks of I'm trying to sound not like a sadist. Because accompanied by a whole hunk and hell of a lot of pain, you sound like a monster. By no little pain seems like you're trying to you know sound clinical when in fact you are a psychotic monster who just wants to see how much suffering you're about to inflict on someone well he also says later that oh i will be remembered alongside mingala yes i mean all yeah. right okay so i have i have looked up the text of at least one uh what is it joe miller's jests mm-hmm I got one for you. This is hot. This is the best comedy from the 1780s. Two Oxford scholars meeting on the road with a Yorkshire ostler, who was apparently somebody who was uh, paid to maintain horses at an inn. 
They fell to bantering him and told the fellow that they would prove him to be a horse or an ass. Well, said the ostler, I can prove your saddle to be a mule. A mule, cried one of them. How can that be? Because, said the ostler, it is something between a horse and an ass. That's some good comedy right there. Solid. I also, I really, really like the beginning of part two where Batman shows up at this bar and you just see him walk into it. McSurley's pub, which is a place that Barr uses repeatedly in his Batman work. But the thing is, as far as I can tell, this is the first appearance of McSurley's, but it's set up to feel really lived in. You know, there's not a lot of explanation as to how Batman knows all these people or how they all know Batman, but everyone does. He's bantering with McSurley. He's bantering with Rhonda, the working girl. Who sits with Robin? She, she, she's a, a, a what? A huh? A, a, a what? A lady. <laughs> Which that I like. I like that Bruce isn't judgy of Rhonda. The moment when the guy tries to hit Batman with the pool cue and he knocks him out with the pool ball. The bit with Moose profile the information broker's bodyguard. The, the shoelaces. They, that's a Bugs Bunny bit. That absolutely reads like Bugs Bunny. I can only imagine. So, so when was when was year one? Year one was shortly before this, because this is what did I say? I said uh, eighty six, December of eighty six, January of eighty seven cover dates. So year one was oh year what? This is right before year one. Okay, the second part of this comes out the month before year one. Because year one is a cover date of February of 87. It's time for year one, man. <laughs> yeah, because 570 is January of 87. Year one, part one is February of 87. I mean, this is fun. And as we've discussed, there's room for all sorts of Batman interpretations. This is pushing the serious, straight-laced Batman almost to the point of parody. Because this this second issue, especially, and the bar's fun, but you just said, like, it is a Bugs Bunny bit. And I am less in love with Batman basically threatening profile the information broker, threatening to frame him for a crime, to send him to jail. And then the little smirk is, you'd be real popular up there, profile, if you catch my drift. Not in love with that. Yeah, I'm I'm glad we have maybe moved on from m- making that as a as a consistent joke in comedy. Uh, one thing that really confused me in this issue. So Catwoman has this mind erasing rescrambling procedure. Moon says, "All right, be careful when you ask her questions because, you know, you just scrambled her brains. Maybe she will know the answer. Maybe she'll give you a fake answer. Maybe she'll forget whatever it is she knew. Very convenient if you're trying to make Catwoman forget uh, that she knows Batman's identity. Joker asks, okay, who is Batman? And she tells him. It's not really that legible, but she tells him right there on the page, Batman is Robert Redford. Yes! 
Yes, that is exactly what I read when I pinched and expanded the panel. Yes. And he laughs. And I was like, okay, Joker gets that it's a joke or she's wrong or whatever. But then the rest of the story proceeds as if she gave him an actual name and Joker believes it. And also within Joker's little warehouse, we get a flat out Silver Age prop of Robin chasing two of Joker's thugs with a giant eight ball. And then we get the really problematic panel. Oh, boy. When Straight Line attacks Batman and has a bit of dialogue. He's in a gi and, oh, it it makes 16 candles look enlightened. Uh, it's, uh, it's, it's breakfast at Tiffany's level of uh, bad dialogue and uh, bad stereotyped accents. One thing that I really do like is there's one page where Bruce and Selena are fighting after she has had her mind wiped and it's a silent page and Barr just lets Davis tell the story with his art and it does a really good job of it. The art here is stunning. I mean, we've said it when we've talked about all the other Alan Davis stuff, but Davis does such expressive faces and has such a great sense of motion to his art. I really like the art in these books. And we also see in the end, as they've captured the uh, the Benson family, who's the heiress is still cataleptic. And she is apparently the one who Selena said was Batman, even though it clearly wasn't. Selena proves that even though Joker has made her a criminal again. He hasn't made her a killer, which is well within Selena's character. But we have the catatonic heiress who Robin trips Joker into her, shocks her with his electric joy buzzer, and it happens to miraculously bring her out of her catatonia as opposed to killing her. Of course it does. That's how these things work. But at the end, we go very un-66 as Bruce just begins to beat the Joker to death after Selina leaves him in a lurch. You've taken everything from me. The bottom panel of the next to the last page where you see him just backhand Joker with his fist. Again, Davis does a really good job with that particular panel. I also don't think Batman ever smiles as much in any other comic that I've ever seen as he does in this. There's a lot of smiling Batman in this story. He even smiled at a prostitute, Matt. I like that Batman is pro-sex work. In the end, you know, every there, there's a happy ending and Bruce and Dick swing off even though Bruce has lost the woman he loves. And it was never followed up on again. Uh, her brain just stayed scrambled in whatever earth this is she's still brain scrambled but hey moon says like yeah i could i could do it again but why would i it's my masterpiece and i'm sure batman sent him to that prison that he threatened profile with so we will someday encounter those characters again profile and mcsurley in a couple of other bar stories that we will eventually cover someday. But I mean, I think we've gone through the entire story and it's fun. 
Got some weird little hiccups, but yeah. Barr's stuff in general has always seemed... His Batman is always just not quite what you'd expect. I mean, he's son of the demon. Uh, Fear for sale. I mean, he's, you know, human shield Batman. But I think we've covered this whole thing. Oh, that means it's time. Put Detective Comics 569-570. Catches cat scan on the big board. Fear for sale which is the next issue, is at 108. This is not as good as Fear for Sale. Uh, no. And the, I mean, all of the other stories from this run are higher than that. Because that's also my beginning and my probable end, which is in the 80s. And Doomsday Book, which is at 105. It was right around the same area. So we're, we're below all of those. What's the uh, what's the floor for you there, buddy boy? This definitely does uh, as a a an extreme floor. This doesn't fall in the two hundreds. Whoa, this that's is a, that's a lot to work with. Oh yeah, no, this is well. Ab- I'm just I'm starting there and I'm gonna work my way up. Okay, I'm trying to find something else comparable. What about Enter the Croc at one thirty six? Okay, I, I was starting to, to look around that area. That story is more important as it is the first appearance of Jason Todd and Killer Croc. It is a bit long, though. Say whatever you want. This story, two issues, it, it moves at a good clip. It tells its story and it's it's done. I think Larceny My Sweet is better. I like that story, the, the Summer Gleason stuff there with Clayface. So let's see, we're definitely not higher than 130 to pick a random number. Uh, Secret <clears throat> of the Waiting Graves at 148. Historically more important, but I think this is a better story. I think there is some real pathos with Bruce's reaction to Selena and how much it hurts. But it's also so much of the rest of the story is played for laughs. I don't know if I would put this above Injustice Year 2 at 141. So I think that means in the 140s, if you're amenable to that. Yeah, I think I could go for that. Because I was looking, I would not have put it above 134, the first Batman. And we already said, well, we already said 130 wasn't better than 136. So, yeah. What about 146? Because Batman 89 has more, much more pathos with the Two-Face stuff. Batman Grendel, as I as we've said, is enjoyable, but is so steeped in Grendel that it gets as far as high as it does on craft. But this is a more relevant Batman story. Hmm. Talking about how hard or how far you can go on craft alone. That's uh, a good segue into our next discussion. Uh, but yeah, I like this as 146. Okay, 146 it is. And our final story of the night is Rooftops. This is Batman Volume 3, numbers 14 and 15. The writer is Tom King with 
Art and Colors by Mitch Gerrids, letters by Clayton Cowles, and edited by Mark Doyle and Rebecca Taylor. The cover date is March of 2017. Batman has one last night with Catwoman before he must take her to Blackgate to serve a life sentence. It's a night of adventure, of love, and of hard truths. We are back in Tom King Town. For better and for worse. Listen, we're going to get to some real rough Tom King over in, in the future. This is by no means the roughest Tom King. This is still pretty good Tom King. It's a lot of Batcat, Matt. Here's the thing. This is the beginning of Batcat. And the problem here is it's very difficult to divorce this from all the stuff that will come after it. You are very right. If you can divorce this from everything it is going to become, this is a really good Batman and Catwoman story. Not only narratively, but this being the only trick and the only thing that Tom King knows how to do. This is what this whole run becomes by the end. But we don't know that at this point. At this point, we are coming out of two big arcs that are blockbusters and about to go into a third arc that is another blockbuster. Uh, That's uh, jokes and riddles? No, this goes into I Am Bane. Ah. Because you have I Am Gotham, I Am Suicide, and then I Am Bane with rooftops in between Suicide and Bane. That's right. On 15, it says, you know, I Am Bane coming up. And then after Bane, it's the button, and then the the proposal issue, and then Jokes and Riddles. Jokes and Riddles is still, Jokes and Riddles is 25. So we're still 10 issues away from Jokes and Riddles at this point. Well, we're going to have to cover that, aren't we? At some point. So here, here is a central question that confused the shit out of me when I read this the first time. Not all that much clearer now. When did all of these people die? And why is Catwoman being blamed for him? I know why Catwoman wants to be blamed for it. I know she wants to take this uh, rap for her friend. But when do these events take place? And why am I almost feel like I, I should know? I am assumed to have known. You would not have known. This is completely off panel. You're asking a question that makes my head ache. (laughs) Because what we are dealing with here is continuity nonsense. Mm, Yes. Because you got to remember, this is towards the beginning of the rebirth era. So it's literally making my head hurt trying to explain this. And that's coming from me. Once upon a time, before the Flashpoint, there was Batman and Catwoman, and they knew each other's identities, and they had a rocky, on-and-off, love-hate relationship. And there was Holly Robinson, who was Selina's best friend. Then the Flashpoint happened, and Holly ceased to exist And Batman and Catwoman no longer knew each other's identities. They fucked with masks on. 
And, Hot. And then we saw in Eternal, Selena does not know Bruce's identity. So we go through that entire 52 months and they don't know each other's identities. Then Rebirth happens and Catwoman doesn't have a book anymore. And we're a few months in and suddenly I Am Suicide happens. Bruce has to recruit Selena out of Arkham Asylum where she is locked up for the murder of 237 people. And somewhere in this period in between the end of the New 52 and this point in Rebirth, this all happened. But it all happened off panel. That's a really weird decision to both do all of that and to make the bit be she killed that many people. Right? It's it's, it's a... It's a... Fire, right? A fire at an orphanage? Is that well, it? Fire at the orphanage is what made Holly lose her marbles. Because, come on, it's not a serial killer killing 237 people. The people who were killed, because we found out in somewhere in I Am Suicide that the 237 people were members of a terrorist sect who burned down the orphanage and killed 163 students, seven teachers, and a janitor. I'm going back and trying to do the research onto what. So this was revenge for the death of all of these people at the orphanage that Selena and Holly were in together, which is completely new continuity. Selena and Holly were not in an orphanage together before the Flashpoint. So so the, the terrorists killed a bunch of kids... And then Holly killed a bunch of terrorists. Yes. And then Selena. That's really stupid. Yeah. That, that is exceptionally stupid. Especially because it goes completely against Holly's character as Brubaker and Will Pfeiffer and Paul Dini and all of the other writers who wrote Holly during the Catwoman run and Countdown, fucking Countdown, established her character. She was not a killer. She was on the run for being framed for murder. She took over as Catwoman after Selina had to step down after she killed Black Mask. But Holly was not a killer. And as far as we know, Holly, I don't even know if we Holly was in an orphanage. Holly was a street kid, but I don't think we ever knew if you know she was an orphan or if she was a runaway or what. And she and Selena, before this, didn't know each other before they were both in the employ of Stan the Pimp. And the fact that Bruce doesn't know who Holly is, despite them interacting repeatedly in the pre-Flashpoint era. So this is playing very fast and loose with continuity, as a lot of things were at this point. Oh, and then meta-referencing year one, too. Year one and Batman number one. Yeah. That's the, the thing that King does that again in some of these days where the two of them can't decide when they actually first met, whether it was on the boat or on the street. It's a very Tom King thing with him playing with perspective and time. All right. I'm going to have to stop thinking about these 300 people who are just killed to give Catwoman an excuse to sacrifice for her friend. Visually, this is stunning. Oh, yeah. Jared can't make the worst Tom King script 
great because we've already seen that because that's friggin' Riddler one bad day. Yeah. But here's the thing. I'm going to say here's something. The thing. And I know that there's going to be a lot of people, including some of our fellow writers of Reconic Success, who are going to want my head for this if they listen to this. Well, well, let me say this before you get into that. Uh, some of our very good friends don't know shit about Batman. I uh, don't know shit about what makes a Batman story uh, good. And uh, you can quote me on that. If Tom King was partnered with perfectly fine comic book artists, Tom King would not get the rep that he has. Oh, yeah. And if he didn't have the backstory to to sell it, ooh, former CIA guy writing Batman? Oh, that's cool. Tom King gets away with writing all of these deadly formalist tracts because the artists that he works with are top-notch artists. Jared's, Greg Smallwood, Walter, Jorge Fornes. These are all incredible artists. They can take the formalism and do something great with it. The art here is absolutely beautiful. There are sequences in here that knock you out. Oh, yeah. Um, I've got, I don't know if, if I have it currently, but I did for a long time, the two-page spread of just Catwoman and Batman on the rooftop. I had that as desktop wallpaper for a while. Like, it is a really just beautiful page. Having said all of that, sometimes Jared's facial expressions just aren't quite right. Sometimes Bruce feels like he's making a boo-boo face and see that in uh, in Cold Days. But aside That's not from Jared's. That, oh? Cold Days is Lee Weeks. Oh. They have a very similar style. I was looking at this and I was thinking that I had never real never thought about how much Jared's can look like Lee Weeks. But reading this, it was like, wow, there is some real similarity in the, the faces, especially. It made me wonder if Jared's was supposed to draw cold days and they went with a similar artist. That two page spread the various pages of Batman and Selina talking while Batman is fighting like the D list of bat rogues is fun just because Jared's draws those various bat rogues really well. Jared's is one panel of Batman punching a werewolf. And it made me want a Mitch Jared's drawn Batman fighting werewolves story. It doesn't take much to make me want a Batman fighting werewolf story, but still, and the gorilla uh, boss of Gotham? A good Batman fighting werewolf story. Let's be clear on that. Uh, because we've had a couple that aren't so good. Uh, but yeah, we get we get Cavalier and Film Freak on the same page. Yep. Solid. And, yep. and the Mad Monk. And then, of course, because it is a Tom King Batman store, you have to have the obligatory Kite Man cameo. Hell yeah. Hell yeah. I like the basic structure that, okay, Bruce and Selina are having this one night before she has to go away. They first start out doing what Batman does, 
which is going out and punching bad guys in the head. And then they go and they have to do what Selena likes to do, which is steal something. It absolutely had to be that Selena wanted him to know the truth because she would not have brought him to this place least under Holly's name if she didn't want him to know because he's the goddamn Batman. He's going to look into it. He's going to put two and two together. And that was a a very contrived little sequence because yeah, they're, they're in the apartment or whatever. They're stealing the thing because it's Catwoman's thing. She then blows the apartment. And because this is one of those moments where they have to be allies and Batman can't be mad at her for the sake of continuing the story. It is, Oh yeah, I just exploded that apartment, but don't worry. I own the floors above it and below it and i installed a very aggressive fire suppression system that's bad writing that is just very bad writing you want to get to that end point you want them to be friends and you know catwoman to still be able to do crazy dangerous things but you could have changed anything before that to get to that same end point without doing this silly contrivance but it's tom king if he can't be clever why would he write yeah <gasps> oh it's very true matt why why do we do anything aside from just to show other people how clever we are the cleverest moment that i in the book the one that i enjoyed the most is clock king like i have spent years figuring out a way to make this trap work you have minutes and the one thing he didn't take into consideration was Catwoman being there just swinging through the window and punching him in the head. It reminds me of Prometheus. It's like these guys never take into account, oh, right, Catwoman could show up at any point and decide to work with Batman today. Yeah, you can plan for a Robin, right? You probably should plan for a Robin. Like, who knows which one? But, you know, just account for some Robin. But Catwoman, that's a that's a variable there. And yes, as you mentioned, Selena has all of her diamonds and they wind up having sex on the diamonds with the bat signal shining above them. The sex on the rooftop, I'm okay with that. Again, the diamonds seem, to it seemed like it was to get the page where you have both the diamonds, which is Selena's thing, and the bat signal, which is Bruce's, one above and one around them to show them coming together. Ayo. But I'm bummed. That one came out. I didn't even realize it was coming. But then. The boys have so many questions listening to this. In the end, the final lines are about Batman saying that, you know, she stole the night. And the opening page of issue two, as they're laying post coital wrapped in his cape. With the diamonds twinkling around them, it looks like they are in the night sky. And you know, credit with that next page where Jared's is aping both Bob Kane and Magic Kelly on the same page. Credit for an artist who can do a decent riff on those very different artists. And continue to do his own shit on the same page. Yeah. And this is 
I still think outside of some of these days, this has the best Batman Catwoman rapport in any of King's Batcat stuff. The back and forth that they have in these opening pages about their first meeting, about what drew them to each other is really well done and ending in what I feel like is possibly the first time they've said, I love you to each other. And the fact that they hold that and it is a really nice six, not nine for once, but a six panel grid there. It worked for me because I just did my best to not think about all of the bat cat that was to come and just thought about it as this one story. Catwoman wants the night. We want just rooftops. And then the the nine panel grid of Jim Gordon brushing his teeth. Oh yeah, that's good. That is. There was a friend of mine. I, I can't remember who it was. It was it was a college friend of mine who anytime we were watching a movie and they said the title of the movie in the movie, he'd go, wah, wah. <laughs> anytime I see a nine panel grid in Tom King comic, I feel like going, wah, wah, wah. because he overuses the nine panel grid formalistically in his scripts so much. And it's not as bad in this. There aren't as many nine-panel grids over the course of these issues. But they're also, and this is probably a Jared's thing, nearly all of these pages have very strict panel borders. They're all very clearly paneled. Jared's is not experimenting with breaking panels and doing weird things with the layout of a page. You're getting a splash a three panel, a six panel, a nine panel, maybe a, uh, a four, but you're not getting wild panel layouts, which is not a problem. Different artists have different styles and Jared's does great things with those layouts. But I feel like he and King work well together because Jared's likes that and King likes writing in those kind of strict formalist structures. I like funky layouts when they work, but when they don't work, it can be a nightmare to actually, the same thing with lettering, to just try to sit there and read the page. Yes, I I think we've seen truly mind-bogglingly frustrating weird layouts, but we also occasionally get, one of my favorites is uh, Faces, where Matt Wagner did Bruce and the other rich guy running around the track. Oh, yeah. That's a great funky layout. Wagner, in general, does really great funky layouts. Anything where the layout can serve the storytelling is what I'm looking for. Not just a layout to just be doing, you know, the layout. Uh, But that is a really good example of, okay, they're going around a track. So instead of doing a nine panel grid where we're just showing different shots of them on the track, let's lay out the whole track and then show them in movements around the track. And I think, prove me wrong with a, a reference if if you've got one, but that's not what Jared's does. Jared's likes strict 
layouts. The only time there might be something funky is in some of the Mr. Miracle stuff as the, the, the anti-life equation comes in to play, but I'd have to go back and reread that. But yeah, this does have some really, really good Batman Catwoman. And you can absolutely see the relationship that King wants them to have in this two-issue story. It's just that it beats you over the head as the run progresses. And it becomes the only thing that defines the two of them. And the only thing that Tom King cares about in writing uh, the book. But I think that about does it for this one. All that means it's time. But Batman number 14 and number 15 rooftops on the big board. All right. So this is not going up with some of those days or cold days because they're, you know, way, way up at the tippity top. Uh, cold days currently checking in at number four and Batman annual number two checking in at number seven. So it's not up there. However, it is considerably above our other King and Jared story, The Brave and the Mold, down at 177. Yeah, that one was uh, no bueno. Awful Pretty falls apart in the third act. Yeah. I would not have a problem putting this above Eternal Volume 1 at 50. So I, I would not be upset if we come away from this and this is a top 50. Okay. My opening bid was the question, was it going to crack the top 100? But... Oh, no. I came in too hot. No, no, that's fine. I was going to work my way up. I just wanted to start at that. I'll be completely honest, with that as a placement, I wonder if this is 50. It is not above 42 or 43. It's not better than the first Tim Drake story at 42 or the first Leslie Tompkins story at 43. And I don't think it's better than uh, Man Who Laughs at 49. Right. So I'm thinking it might be number 50. Sure. Okay, that was easy. I came in at the very highest Matt would go. I do love that beginning of that second part. And clocking, getting punched in the head. It's such a pretty book. The coloring, it's so vibrant. And just the transition from night to day and then dawn on the next couple of pages. Like, it's it's really stunning. I wish Jared's had better friends. I gotta, I'm trying to think if I've ever read anything Mitch Jared's drew that was not written by Tom King. And I don't know if I have looking at his bibliography and i i don't believe i have writ, read anything drawn by jared's that was not written by king you're allowed to work with other people mitch i promise yeah it makes me want to like dig into his other work cuz i'm curious i mean has he done other than covers and things anything that is not with tom king i do not know but that's it for tonight. Next week, it's stories of the Trinity, Batman, Superman, and Wonder Woman, with a tale featuring all three and a tale featuring Batman teaming up individually with Superman and with Wonder Woman. 
We'd like to thank our Patreon backers, Dan Grote, June, Conduit of Outdated Joke Names. June, come on. Josh Wheel, Mrs. Abigail Hartbaum. Mm. Asimov Fangirl, Tony Thornley. Sorry, sorry, we could we could leave this in. I was busy trying to look at uh, Jared's other works, and uh, he did uh, a, a Punisher, apparently, with uh, Nathan Edmondson, maybe? So there's at least one thing, one thing. Uh, but yes, go Utes. Uh, now I've lost my place. Uh, <laughs> uh, that was Tony. Sam Hopper, John Wickham, Robert Secundus. Bobby Two Bucks gonna be back on the show, and we've got something really terrible for him to read. Tim Rooney, Giorgio Sergioli, David Wheel, and Alexander Wheel for their support. You can follow this podcast on Twitter at Batchat Comics, and the show is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music slash Audible, and on Comics XF, where new episodes drop every Thursday. You can support the podcast on Patreon at patreon.com slash batchat with Matt and Will, where you can get shout-outs, bonus content, pick a story, and even come on the show. If you want to hear more of my ramblings, mostly about the three C's, comics, cinema, and cats, you can follow me on Twitter at mattlaz 1013 And I'm at Will Nevin. I'm also out of here. Good night, Huntsville! And be sure to visit ComicsXF at ComicsXF.com or at ComicsXF on Twitter for our weekly Friday Bat Chat roundup of new Bat Books. For my other show, WMQ&A, where my longtime best friend Dan Grote and I interview comics creators, retailers, publishers, and other related tradespeople, as well as all the other stuff Will and I are writing. And stay safe out there, folks. Gotham is not a place to be after dark.